Thank you for choosing to listen to the Emmaus Radio Ministry Podcast. Each of these messages were given by various faculty, staff, and friends of Emmaus Bible College. To view each series as a whole, or for more information about similar Emmaus ministries, please visit concerninghim.com. That's C-O-N-C-E-R-N-I-N-G-H-I-M.com. Welcome back to our study of the Gospel of Matthew. Today we will discuss chapter 1, verses 18 to 25, concerning the birth and naming of Jesus Christ. We have been set up for unexpected events with the way the genealogy ends in verse 16. And Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom, the Greek is feminine here, Jesus was born, who is called Christ. There's clearly a deviation here from the normal pattern of the genealogy in which one person is the father of, or to translate the Greek more literally, begets the next person down the line. But Matthew avoids saying this. Jesus, instead, is born of Mary. Joseph does not beget him. In our text for today, we will eventually find out that uh, what is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit, in verse 20. So the genealogy has foreshadowed that Jesus' birth differs from everyone else in the line, and exactly how will be made clear in 1.18-25 in the so-called virgin birth. Uh, this description You know, it's an unfortunate one. Really, what we mean is a virgin conception, since there's no reason here to think that the birth itself was uh, anything exceptional. And verse 25 suggests that the period of her virginity ended sometime after the birth of Jesus, as Mary and Joseph uh, would have enjoyed a normally sexually active relationship. The passage breaks up into three sections. Uh, The first deals with uh, setting the stage and can be labeled preparation for the angelic announcement to Joseph. That's just 118 to 19. The second section is the angelic announcement to Joseph itself in 120 to 23. And then the third section is Joseph's obedience to the angel's directions in 124 to 25. Let's start reading in verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, She was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife. But he knew her not until she had given birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. Let's think about the first section, which prepares us to understand why the angel gives his pronouncement to Joseph. Uh, Joseph is considering putting away Mary. Uh, Some might wonder why divorce would be necessary if they weren't even married yet. Uh, Keep in mind that the betrothal or engagement period at that time was much different than what it is today. 
Uh, R.T. France describes it this way, interacting with later rabbinic tradition, what the rabbi said. He says, quote, The difference between our modern concept of engagement and that of first century Jews is indicated by the description of Joseph already in verse 19 as Mary's husband and by the use of the normal word for divorce to describe the ending of the engagement. Though the couple were not yet living together, it was a binding contract entered into before witnesses, which could be terminated only by death, which would leave the woman a widow, or by divorce, as if for a full marriage. Sexual infidelity during the engagement would be a basis for such divorce. About a year after the engagement, the woman, then aged normally about 13 to 14, would leave her father's home and go to live with a husband in a public ceremony, which is here referred to as coming together and will be recorded in verse 24, end quote. So this was Joseph's problem. They were not so married as to have had sexual interaction, but they were exclusively committed to one another. And by being pregnant, Mary sure would have looked like she had broken her side of the contract. But notice Joseph's reasoning. Matthew includes two participial phrases to describe his contemplation. Being a just or righteous man and not wanting to put her to shame. The adjective righteous or just occurs often in Matthew. It's kind of a stock expression to denote God's people, the ones who are saved. Joseph right away gives us an important perspective on this concept. His being righteous or just isn't so much about wanting to make sure that Mary gets what's coming to her. Instead, it is because Joseph is righteous that he doesn't want her to be shamed. His righteous character compels him to have mercy on her and her family. Right at the outset of Matthew, righteousness is characterized as being full of mercy. With this background information, we now know enough for Matthew to tell us about the angel's visit. In the Old Testament, angels occasionally come and tell people that a child is going to be born and maybe give a name. And this name then is important. It tells something of the character of this person. Yet the person in our text here will far outshine all of his predecessors. And just as so many declarations of names in the Old Testament tell us about the importance and role of that figure, so too the unparalleled name of Jesus points to his unrivaled supremacy. Now, don't get me wrong, that's not to say that the actual name was unique. Jesus or Joshua or Yeshua occurred regularly enough, and mostly to distinguish it from the Lord Jesus, English versions use Joshua when this name occurs elsewhere. But the angel's announcement lets us know what is really going on with the name Joshua or Jesus or Yeshua. The central figure of the gospel fulfills this name in a way that no one else ever could. When I mention Joshua, perhaps your thoughts went to the famous Joshua of the historical books, the conqueror who took over Moses' role. In fact, Moses is the one who changed his name from Hoshea, salvation, to Jehoshia, the Lord saves. This meant that God was going to use Joshua as an agent to accomplish the work of salvation, that is, bring the Israelites into the promised land, dispossess the nations that were there so that way Israel could live safely. So the name Jesus means Yahweh saves. It is telling then that we have this description, call his name Jesus for he, and the Greek is emphatic here, for he will save his people from their sins. Now the he must be Jesus and the angel's pronouncement 
puts Jesus shockingly close to the position of Yahweh. Think of it this way. The logic is, uh, like the angel said, you will call his name Yahweh saves, for Jesus will save his people. The object here, his people, refers to Israel. And yet, as the gospel will unfold, it will become increasingly clear that not everyone in the nation will benefit from this salvation mission. And it will also become clear that even those who are not a part of his people will benefit from the advent of Jesus. Let's also look at that last bit of the prepositional phrase. The Old Testament is full of statements of God saving his people, but very often it's from their oppressors, the Canaanites or the Philistines or something like that. Here, however, Jesus will save his people from their sins. And this is kind of unexpected from an Old Testament vocabulary perspective. Uh, something like what we have in Luke 1, 71 and 74 by the mouth of Zechariah would have been more expected. That he will uh, provide salvation from the hand of our enemies. In the Old Testament, several figures are raised up as deliverers in order to save the people of Israel, uh, from their enemies. And if you're familiar with those stories, the reason they're in any trouble is because of their sin. Jesus will go farther than Joshua or Gideon or Samson and attack the problem at the root by dealing with the problem of sin. Now, this unexpected uh, expression, salvation from sin, uh, does have a precedent in the Old Testament. Ezekiel 37 contains the prophecy of the David-like shepherd who will rule over Israel. Verse 23 states, They shall not defile themselves any more with their idols and their detestable things or with any of their transgressions, but I will save them from all the backslidings in which they have sinned and will cleanse them and they shall be my people and I will be their God. This is in the context of the New Covenant or the New Testament. The reason why Jesus gives his body and blood as a ransom to pay the price for sin. With this in mind, salvation from sin is not simply reform. Ezekiel 37, 23 talks about cleansing from sin. There's a forgiveness that goes on there. But it is a kind of salvation that ends up keeping people from the trap of sin as well. Verse 22 uh, then gives us another name for the Messiah in Matthew chapter 1. Uh, though this name never functions practically like the name Jesus. The boy is to be called Emmanuel from the Hebrew im with nu, us, and el, God. Matthew goes out of his way a total of four times in chapters 1 to 2 to say that an event was the fulfillment of Scripture. And five times if you include uh, the message from the chief priests about Bethlehem from Micah 5.2. But in each of the four fulfillment cases of chapters 1 to 2, fulfillment doesn't exactly or simply mean prediction and then coming to pass. Something like a typological or symbolic anticipation is most likely happening, in which Jesus is the antitype, a greater than figure. Just like the Old Testament Passover lamb was a real, actual, literal sheep, but it also is a type, a symbol that pointed forward to Jesus the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's the thrust of these fulfillment passages, a typological fulfillment. 1.23 quotes Isaiah 7.14, and that context concerns King Ahaz as he worries about the threat of the Syrian invasion. Isaiah appears to him 
with comfort that God is with him. And the proof that such is the case is that a virgin will give birth to a child. And before that child is past what we would call the age of accountability, the invading threat will be gone. Now, there are all sorts of variables and unknowns in Isaiah 7, as well as competing interpretations. And unfortunately, we don't have enough time to dig it into them here and now. But let me at least at this point point out that uh, though the circumstances in Isaiah 7 do concern events during the lifetime of King Ahaz, centuries before Matthew 1, there are indications, even in the text of Isaiah, that something bigger is going on. Isaiah says that the sign he is giving is huge, higher than heaven, and lower than hell. This requires something more than a young woman giving birth to a child. Uh, furthermore, Isaiah 7 to 12 are all connected as a unit, and there's a repeated theme of a, the miraculous gift, a child. And we have the powerful 9-6, unto us a child is born, and unto us a son is given. This one will have the government upon his shoulder and will bring in everlasting peace. So, though Isaiah 7 has one fulfillment during the days of Ahaz, even Isaiah itself gives us clues that something bigger is also being anticipated. The ultimate fulfillment of God with us is the advent of God incarnate, who is with his people so as to save them. This is how the book of Matthew begins. This is how the book of Matthew ends, with Jesus being with the disciples as they go to all nations, even unto the end of the age. This is the hope which people had waited for for long, long years. And this twofold naming, description of Jesus Emmanuel should bring us great hope. God has come to us in the person of Jesus. And he hasn't just come to look around and see what's happening and look at the sights as a tourist. God has come in Jesus on a mission to save his people from their sins. Uh, my prayer is that uh, this hope of who Jesus is would inspire you to trust him and to respond in action and be like Joseph who, raising from his sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. Thank you for listening to the Emmaus Radio Ministry Podcast. This ministry is possible because of the generous contributions from our partners around the world. For more information about partnering with us, please visit emmaus.edu slash partner.